All right, welcome, good evening. Uh, it's good to see you guys. So this is our fourth night on Theology 101. We are on Article 2, the Bible, Part 2. So I really enjoyed our time together last week, and I am grateful to be with you again tonight. Um, I would love to open in a word of prayer and then do a super lightning round review of last week, and then we'll hit tonight. So let me pray for us. God, thank you for this night. Thank you for your presence here with us and just what a blessing it is to gather together in your presence and with each other to open your word. Spirit, thank you for um, illuminating your word to us and helping us to understand. I pray that you would be our teacher and that you would be honored and glorified tonight as we um, just dig in a little bit more into your words and how you communicate it to us. We give you this time. I pray for um, small group time as well, that we would just have some great conversations. Um, and so we ask all this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, just to have a quick lightning review of last week, I want to read Psalm 19, 7 through 11 again, because I love it so much. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. We shared the story of how in Jewish school... They had a special ceremony on the very, very first day. The rabbi would put honey, drip honey, onto the slate as he was starting to teach them the alphabet and have each little boy lick the honey and taste the honey and talk about how God's word is sweeter than honey. So keep that honey stick as a reminder, and if you weren't here, take home a honey stick as a reminder to you. We will barely scratch the surface again. Um, tonight, but there are a lot of great resources if you want to go deeper. And I pray that for all of us that we would crave the Word of God even more, just like we do honey or whatever it is, that sweet treat that is your favorite treat. Um, we looked at an optical illusion and talked about our perceptions. Our perceptions tell us whether the red lines are straight or curved, but our perceptions can mislead us. So we need a standard of truth. We need some standard of truth of measure to know whether those lines are straight or not. And in life, our standard of truth is scripture. We need something that we can go back to, and it is God's word. Well, a couple more things to review. We talked about how God is a God who speaks. And he chose to communicate with you because he loves you and he desires a relationship with you. And he wanted to redeem a people for himself. So he spoke through creation, the prophets, the apostles, his son, and then through scripture. Um, so his word is really a love letter to us because he loves us. And I actually have a love letter that I brought. I don't know if my husband saw this. This letter is 41 years old. It's dated 1980. I'm not going to pass it around. I found there's a picture in it, though. I could pass the picture around. I didn't know there was a picture in it. But I've saved this for 41 years, and I've treasured it because it's a love letter from somebody I really love and care about who I ended up marrying. This was sometime in high school. And God's word is a love letter to us, and may we treasure it 
and hold it close and dear because of who it is that wrote it to us. We talked about general and special revelation. God reveals his existence, character, and moral law through creation to all humanity in general revelation. And God reveals the gospel and the plan of salvation through special revelation. Through inspiration, holy men of God wrote down the very words that God wants to communicate to man. And through illumination, the Holy Spirit, man can believe in and understand the scripture. We talked about that the canon is these 66 books are the canon that God chose to be a part of our scriptures and men just determined. And nothing can be added, nothing can be taken away. And finally, we talked about how the scripture is unique and unified by how many authors and how many years it was written and how many languages. And it's one central character, one story, and it all fits together. And it's still the number one bestseller of all times. So tonight, to finish up the rest of Article 2, everything that was contained in the script of Article 2, which we're not going to read again, we're going to talk about the three characteristics of Scripture, inerrancy, sufficiency, and authority. And then we'll talk about the three responses to Scripture, which are believe, trust, and obey. So we got a lot. So first, the first characteristic of Scripture, inerrancy. So Grudem says the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything which is contrary to fact. And that's from his Bible Doctrine book. The Bible always tells the truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. God's word is truth. In general intro to the Bible, Geisler and Nick say, the inspiration of scripture includes its inerrancy, for the Bible is the word of God and God cannot err. To deny the inerrancy of scripture is to impugn either the integrity of God or the identity of the Bible as the word of God. The argument may be stated as follows. The Bible is the word of God. God cannot err. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. So, sure, there are copy errors, but none of them change the main message. Can you all read that little excerpt from scripture there? What does it say? Yeah, very good. All right, good job, Ellen. Did, did my copy errors change the main message? Is the main message still clear? Yes, so there are copy errors. And there are evangelical theologians that have researched every single error. Every error that anybody bring, has brought up, they've researched it. And if you love that kind of stuff, there are a lot of good resources. Even Wayne Grudem on his podcast goes through almost every single common one, and he gives the evidence for a reasonable explanation for every single one of them. We don't have the time to do that. But um, if you would like more of that, there are great resources to look into it. So the Bible is without error, and all that the writers intend to affirm is true. We can't add to or take away from God's word, and we must seek the literary conventions of the writers. So the grammatical historical method of, in, of interpretation focuses on the author's intent. We want to look to interpret 
for what the author was intending to mean at that time, what God was trying to say through the author. And so we ask, what did he mean when he wrote it? And we want to take into account all these different factors when we're interpreting scripture through the Holy Spirit, the historical context, the cultural context, the religious, linguistic, and the literary style of the writer when we're interpreting. Isaiah 45, 19 says, I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And I love especially that first part, I have not spoken in secret. It's not secret, things that only some people can understand or figure out, only the priests can figure out, um, the pastors. Um, we all can. Hebrews 6 to 18 says, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. So God does not change. God does not lie. We can take hold of the hope. We can be encouraged by it. So here's a question. I've got a I've got about one question for each main area, and, uh, and if you're a group leader, you might want to jot these down because these questions might be good for small group discussion time. Um, so here's a question. Why is inerrancy such a big deal? That'd be a fun one to kind of talk about and discuss. Why is it such a big deal? Like, is it really that big of a deal if there's some copy errors? Maybe there's a few mistakes, you know, maybe there's some a few contradictions. What's really the big deal. There are a lot of strong, you know, claiming to be strong believers that, be that do not believe that scripture is inerrant and that it's not that big of a deal. So why is it such a big deal? Well, one reason is it presents a serious moral problem. You know, Ephesians 5.1 says we are to imitate God. Well, if God errs and we're called to imitate God, does that mean it's okay for me to Air, even in a small matter, why, why can't I? A second reason why it, it could be such a big deal is that we start to begin, can I really trust God in anything, right? You know, when a child tells a little small lie and that, that trust breaks because you're like, gosh, if he did this little small lie or, or broke my trust in this, it's possible to break my trust in something bigger. The third one, we make our own human minds a higher standard than God's word itself. So if God's word has some mistakes in it, some lies and things, then I'm determining what's truth and what's not really says. And my mind, I'm, I'm saying that my mind is a higher standard than God's truth. And fourth, we must also say that the Bible is wrong not only in minor details, but in some doctrines. If there's little problems, what's not to say that there's some problems with some major doctrines that really, really matter? So why is inerrancy such a big deal? In short, it really does kind of open up a big can of worms, so to speak, doesn't it? There's no such thing as just a little white lie, right? Because it grows and we tell a bigger one to cover it up and a bigger one to cover it up. And it just doesn't work. Matthew 5.18 says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And Proverbs 35 says, Every word of God is flawless. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And then there's two more references that are good to look up to that we won't read now. 
All right, so the first characteristic was inerrancy. The second characteristic of Scripture that we're going to talk about is sufficiency. Grudem says the sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains everything we need for God for salvation and for trusting him perfectly and for obeying him perfectly. So special revelation, as opposed to general revelation, is to equip us for coming to Christ through salvation and for living the Christian life. Psalm 119.1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. No other writing is necessary for the gospel. No other writing is necessary for life and practice. Not any other supposedly good prophet. Not um, and Lots of other religions, have add, they believe in the Bible, but then they add another book to it. But Scripture clearly says nothing else is needed. Three... Um, Three good points of sufficiency here. One, we can find all that God has said on particular topics, and we can, can find answers. We are capable of finding answers. We are capable of looking into all that God has said. It is possible to study theology and ethics and discover answers to whatever your tough questions are. Number two, the amount of scripture given was sufficient at each stage. God revealed things for his people for that time that they were to study, to believe, and obey. And then three, some practical applications for sufficiency. A, it encourages us to search the Bible for answers. The Bible is sufficient for life, for faith, and practice. So that encourages us to, to look, to search it for ourselves. B, sufficiency gives us a warning to not add to the scriptures because it's sufficient. If it's sufficient, it's sufficient. It's just like Christ's redemptive work. It's, it's complete. Christ's redemption is complete. There's nothing we add or take away to it. C, sufficiency gives us a warning to not count any other guidance from God equal to Scripture. No modern revelations from God are to be placed on a level equal to Scripture in authority. That scripture is sufficient for trusting, for believing, and obeying. Um, when our daughter, two summers ago, one of our daughters spent the summer in the Middle East with actually the Free Church on a mission strip. And in the Middle East with the, um, we actually have a Quran. In their homes with the Quran, whatever the highest piece of furniture in the house is, that's what they set the Quran on. Now, I don't, you know, that's a great symbol, right, of an outward sign of that this is supreme over everything else. Obviously, the question would be in their hearts, is their Quran higher and elevated than, any, than anything else? So for us, you know, is scripture and our hearts and our minds elevated higher and above anything else in our home and our life? D, sufficiency gives us a warning to not add more sins or requirements to those named in the scripture. We have plenty already named. We don't need to name anymore. E, Sufficiency gives us an encouragement to be content with Scripture. Emphasize what Scripture emphasizes in our doctrinal and ethical teaching, and not to be overly concerned with things that Scripture doesn't emphasize or doesn't specifically address. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord. In the free church, we hear this mantra a lot that says, Major on the majors and minor on the minors. So if an issue comes up, like, okay, is it central to the gospel? 
Yes. Okay, great. That's a major issue. Then we're going to major on that. Is it not central to the gospel? Then no, maybe we're going to minor on that. You know, is it immersion in baptism or sprinkling? You know, is it is it a minor issue? Then we're going to minor on it. So major on the majors and minor on the minors. So question that this arises, what about good biblical resources in literature written by godly men and women? Think about what is one of your favorite books written by a good Christian author. I'm sure everybody's got at least one. This is one of mine. This is, um, this was a very transformational book in my journey. This is With by Sky Jathani. And he goes through uh, four prepositions, four postures of living your life under God, over God, from God. And then, obviously, with is the proper posture. Um, but what do we do about books like that? We can, we can use them and glean them in light of Scripture and in light of truth and still hold Scripture higher than the book. I don't hold this book higher than scripture. This scripture is higher than this book, but we can still use them. They can give us a lot of wisdom and discernment, and um, they can be very transformational in our spiritual journey. All right, the third, so inerrancy, sufficiency. The third characteristic of scripture is authority. Grudem says that the authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. The final authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged, that's the authority of Scripture. Everything comes through the lens and is judged through the lens of Scripture. So here's another question. Do we simply believe or are we convinced that the claims that the Bible makes in the words of God are true? Um, Grudem also says in Bible Doctrine, our ultimate conviction that the words of the Bible are God's words comes only when the Holy Spirit speaks in and through the words of the Bible to our hearts and gives us an inner assurance that these are the words of our Creator speaking to us. So somebody's not going to all of a sudden like being, oh, Scripture's true. There are a lot of good resources to break down some barriers. But in the end, it's going to be reading Scripture. And as reading Scripture, the Holy Spirit speaking through that and convincing that, oh, I, I am reading the true words here of my Creator, of God Almighty. All right, another question having to do with literature. What about an area of life or learning that the Bible does not specifically address? The Bible doesn't tell us every little thing. Yes, it tells us enough for salvation and for, for living it out, but it doesn't tell us everything, every little thing. So what about things like the sciences and other, other things like that? What do we do with other areas that Scripture does not specifically address? And I have one of Lance's books here for this. Um, this is one of his, I'm not sure if he actually reads this or has read it. This is one of his psychology books. And psychology is a science that is not specifically addressed in scripture. Um, this particular book is edited by Christian authors who looked into the field of psychology 
and looked into what we can learn um, because all truth is God's truth and into scripture and already put it through the lens and the filter of scripture so that we don't have to throw out the whole field of psychology. We can, we can study it in light of scripture and use what's good about it and have a good um, blend of psychology. So again, use all the resources that God has made available. All truth is God's truth, and scripture is a standard over every other claim. All right, a final note here. Um, when there are things we don't understand in the Bible or in life, we can go back to the character of God as Tammy taught us in the first article. We cling to what we know about God. So if things are a little fuzzy or a little blurry or, or in, in scripture or in life, maybe it doesn't make sense and we're not sure where to land, we go back to God's character. We go back to the fact that he's proven himself faithful, that he's loving, that he's good, that he's omniscient. So here's the question, what makes more sense? When something doesn't make sense to you, what makes more sense? That God got it wrong or that I just don't fully understand yet? We don't know every answer to every question and that makes us feel uneasy. It makes us feel uncomfortable sometimes. We don't like feeling uncomfortable because it's an uncomfortable feeling. But we know the one who does know all things and who does have all the answers. And he has proven himself trustworthy. And so we can trust in who he is. Acts 17.11 says, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Can you imagine like Apostle Paul like, mm, Paul, let me double check that, that you, what you're really saying is true. But that's a great example. They examined the scriptures. Doesn't matter if it was Paul. We might equate that with Billy Graham or somebody, but um, examine them every day. So God's word is inerrant. It is sufficient and it is authoritative. All right, let's look at our three responses to scripture, to believe, trust, and obey. And when you say believe, trust, and obey, I mentioned this last week. The first thing I thought of when I read those words, when I first read the book, was the good old hymn, trust and obey. Um, what comes, you know, think about what comes to your mind. What kind of thoughts or feelings come to your mind when somebody says, believe, trust, and obey? It feels very, to me, it feels very cognitive and very kind of works-oriented and do, I got to do. Um, so maybe we can frame them in a little bit different of a light so it doesn't feel quite so behavior-driven and quite so cognitive. So our first response to God's word is to believe. And again, this is through illumination, through the work of the Holy Spirit, but it points to action, not just knowledge. Because what is the benefit of knowledge if we're not doing anything with it? Scripture says even the demons believe and shudder, right? So question, do I believe in my head and my heart? And what does that really mean or look like to believe something in my heart? That could be a good question to discuss. Ephesians 1, 17 through 18, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. 
So to believe is our first response to scripture. Our second response to scripture is to trust. And um, trust is just really belief put into action. Going from my head to my hands. And here's a question I would love for you all to think about. What does trust look like for you? Or sometimes it's easier to think about what's the opposite of trust. What does that look like? for you. I think for me, trust is a surrender. It's a letting go. So this posture. And for me, the opposite is hanging on and control and doing it my way. And um, Romans 4 is, this is referring to the story of Abraham. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And then, of course, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean out on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit. There's that surrender. Submit to him, and he will make your path straight. So believe and trust is our two responses to God's word. And the third is to obey. Now, obey feels, this one of all of them feels just really behavior-driven. Yet, I don't know, if anybody pictures their mom or their dad and, you know, got to obey and better do this and obey or else, it, it doesn't. It doesn't just give us warm feelings, does it? But think about it in a different light. Think about obedience as a natural outflow based on the love relationship. Think about it as being is the be instead of doing, which is duty. When it's out of a loving relationship, it's a natural outflow. It's just who we are. When it's not, it's a, a duty. You know, you ever hear the kid say, who, you know, the kid you say, sit down. And he says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside, right? Because it's done out of duty, not of a natural overflow of the heart. Um, so here's, a, here's the question. What does it look like for you to focus on the be instead of the do? What does that look like to just be in relationship with Christ instead of do obey him, do for him? Galatians 5, through 23 says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The natural outflow of the Holy Spirit indwelling me is that he grows his fruit. Obedience and fruit are evidence that we know Christ. If we don't see obedience and fruit in somebody, we might wonder, I wonder if they really do have a, a saving relationship with Christ because we don't see the fruit. So again, obedience is a natural outflow because we're securing God's love. We love him. And his spirit indwells us, and it's a natural outflow. It's not, oh, man, I, I just need to try harder. You know, I keep messing up, keep messing up, keep doing the same sin, keep messing up the same way. I just need to try harder. And there is an element to discipline in the Christian life. 
um, but it's more of the natural outflow than the, the doing, the, the obedience. Second Timothy, we got to go back to 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. One last time, and in verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And here's our question. Are we willing to be taught, rebuked, trained, and corrected in righteousness? Like, are, are, we, are we open and receptive to that? Or who are we open and receptive to? Do you have some people in your life that maybe want to correct you or want to discipline you or point things out and maybe um, it is not well received by you? Maybe because of the kind of relationship you have with that person. And maybe there are other people or friends that it is well received. And why? It, what makes the difference? Why is that? So because this training in righteousness is from our loving Heavenly Father, the hope or the goal is that because we know that he loves us, we're secure in that love, and we trust him so that we can be open to his, you know, I can be open to um, correction. I'm, I think I'm good with Lance correcting me, you know, on things because... I'm secure that he loves me and he has my best interest. Um, and so it's that trusting relationship. So in conclusion, I want to look at John 10, 2 through 5. I love John 10, the good shepherd. Um, in verse 4 specifically, it's John 10, the whole first section, but in 4, it says, When he, the shepherd, has brought out all of his own, he goes ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. They never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from a stranger because they don't recognize a stranger's voice. So just as a last thought, um, do you know the voice of your shepherd? Do I know the voice of my shepherd? And how do I know it? And obedience is more framed in following our shepherd, following our shepherd who is leading us because we know his voice He's proven he's trustworthy. We're convinced that he loves us, and so we follow him. And we know his voice among, above all the other voices that we're constantly hearing and being bombarded with. So leave with that picture of the good shepherd. So God has spoken. He has spoken because he loves us and wants to initiate a relationship with us to redeem a people for himself. Um, let me close this in prayer. And I encourage you, if you didn't already, to, to really look into the Lectio Divina. It's just a simple four-step on any passage of Scripture, just spending some time, um, a simple structure of sitting in God's Word. I encourage you to, to try that sometime. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for communicating with us. May your words, Father, be sweeter than honey to us. May we crave your word and enjoy it. May we keep coming back for more, knowing that it's the source of truth and life. God, thank you that you are truth and your words are true and that we can be convinced of that and we can have proof of that. Thank you that your words are enough. They're all we need.
Thank you, Holy Spirit, for illuminating your word to us. We just ask that you would grow your fruit in us and that you would help us to believe, trust, and obey because we love you and we know that you love us and you've proven yourself trustworthy. Lord, help us to know your voice, the voice of our shepherd. Help us to listen. Help us to follow you so closely that the dust of your sandals gets all over us. And as you tell us in your word, heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will never pass away. God, we praise you for that and we love you. Amen.